Garden Church podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. So, if we were hearing this in the first century, or if you were reading this in the first century, a letter that was written by Luke, um, you would immediately pick up on something that's happening. First of all, you pick up on the contrast between what we just read and the story that was just told right before this. Last week, we talked about a story of Zechariah. And so Luke is, is contrasting these two stories. He's weaving them together intentionally. And see, one of the things we have to recognize about Luke is that he is very intentional as a writer and storyteller. Luke is writing a theological narrative. Can you turn this down a little bit? It seems a little hot. Luke is writing a theological narrative. and he, which, What does that mean? It means that he's not just writing so that um, those that are listening or reading know what happened. He wants you to know what it means. So as we begin to read the story of Luke that we're kind of, kind of going through rather quickly, we're reading Luke for 22 weeks, and then we're going to start Acts, which is part two of Luke, for another 22 weeks. And Luke wants you to know not just what happened, not, but what, he wants you to know what it means. And so Luke is writing a detailed account, um, a very specific account, of, what's going, of what happened with Jesus and what's going on. So we know, according to last week, if you are here, that the story of Jesus isn't the beginning of the story. That this is the continuation of a long story of God that picks off where the Old Testament ended. If you recall, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies and promises. That God promised one day he would act again in human history. And when that would happen, uh, the Messiah would come, and all sorts of things would happen. It's called the Day of the Lord. The resurrection of the dead, justice for all, peace, reconciliation, redemption, all sorts of things would happen. But before the Messiah comes, there would be one messenger in the spirit of Elijah that would come, and he would prepare the people of Israel for the Messiah. Are you with me? And so, after Malachi, after the Old Testament ends, there's hundreds, four, over 400 years of silence. No prophecies. No, no words of God. Nothing. Just silence. And Luke begins the story of Jesus with the fulfillment of the prophecy that the messenger of God that will prepare the way is going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, I need you to understand these two stories parallel, and it's really important that we grasp the uh, circumstances that have to do with both of these stories. So I'm going to do I'm going to do some recap from Bill's message. So Zechariah and Elizabeth is the expected story. Zechariah is a male priest married to a a, a female woman who, which is good. <laughs> Married to Elizabeth, who comes from priestly descent. Both of them come yeah. from priestly descent. Um, he's a priest, and the event that where he sees this angel happens in Jerusalem, which is the holy city of Israel, and it happens to happen in the temple, 
which is inside, which is the holy place inside the holy city. And it happens while the priest, Zechariah, is performing at a festival, which is a worship ceremony for all of Israel. And he just so happened to uh, work the incense area, which is part of this major festival that represents the prayers of the people of God. So if you expect God to show up, you would expect him to show up to a male priest married to a female, which we already got over, who's, um, who is, comes from priestly descent. It's happy, you would expect him to speak in Jerusalem, at the temple, during a service, um, during a time when maybe a priest was doing some type of worship ceremony. That's exactly what happens. And it happens to an old, devout Jewish religious couple. So we read that Elizabeth is barren, and how many stories in the Old Testament have you seen God choose to bring life to barren women? Can we recall those stories? So when we pick up the story of God in this gospel, it's as if it's just a continuation of long, old stories we've already heard in the Old Testament. I mean, what's clever about this story, too, is Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. God remembers. What is God? God remembers his promises he spoke to Israel. So we can't really like paint this picture enough. So we see that it's the religious couple in the city at the temple during a worship service. Absolutely, we're with it. We're all on board. Are you with me? You would expect that story, but you wouldn't expect the next story. You would not see this story coming if you made it up. And the story picks up, and you know what? It would be much easier for me if I kind of gave you a little more uh, visualization. When I was an actor, I was taught to visualize the scene. So uh, standing in on behalf of Gabriel, I want to invite my friend Dan to come up. Dan, would you just come up and just stand here as what, as maybe what an angel in the first century might look like. <laughs> Six foot seven. There we go. Maybe not tall enough. I don't know. Because there's not really any indicators except for the fact that the first thing an angel says when greeting a human, because they're taught angel training school, that's not really a thing, but is don't be afraid. So obviously terrifying Dan is here to represent, to represent the angel. And to represent Mary, I'm going to invite my friend Bria. Bria, would you come up and stand on that? Why don't you just go stand on the other side of Dan as well? Because this will be a really helpful contrast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now that you have the visualization, they're just going to stand here looking polite, looking divine like Gabriel, and ever so beautiful as Mary would look. And I'm going to read this again, verse 26 together. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Dan, or Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel uh, went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Okay. So to grasp what's happening, I'm just going to have you stand here so you can kind of get what's going on. Picture Zechariah and Elizabeth, the devout religious couple in the holiest city and the holiest temple. And then you have Mary. Mary is betrothed to be married. Now, in the first century context, women were betrothed at the age of, between the ages of 10 and 12. They were married by the time they were 13. Grace, 13 years old. So when we picture Mary, we need to picture someone that's young. That's the first thing. The second thing we know about Mary is she's a woman. Obviously, that's a really good thing as well. But the thing about women is this. In the first century, uh, women had no place outside of their family 
and outside of marriage, outside of bearing children and having a husband. So they have no real power and authority. Um, in fact, they were seen as inferior in Jewish context and in Roman context. They, there are uh, people that have written about this that said women were incomplete men. That something happened in utero or did not happen, and that's how women were produced. So put that mindset over your mindset now. If you would see Mary through that lens. Now, so she's betrothed. She's 10 to 12 years old. We'll go with 13 because this lady's 13 years old here. And she's from Nazareth. Now, what's significant about Nazareth? Does anybody know? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Josephus, the Jewish historian, doesn't say anything about it. The Old Testament doesn't say anything about it. Rabbinic literature doesn't say anything about it. In fact, there were arguments against Christianity because we didn't know where it was up until recently. In fact, I went to Israel last year, and when we were driving from Tel Aviv to Galilee, uh, the, the driver woke us all up and said, we're about to pass through Nazareth, and sure enough, it was like a truck stop. We just passed right through it. <laughs> Nothing was there. Nothing is significant about Nazareth. And in fact, if you want to go even further, Galilee, the region of Galilee was like Hinkville. It, I mean, it was the backwater part of the backwater part of the Roman Empire. And so we have this nowhere place, and this peasant 12-year-old girl, this nobody with no family history, coming into the story. And this is really important. When we start looking at the, the, the Christmas story through this lens, we have to see that we have an angel that's probably taller than, taller than Dan, and a 13-year-old girl, a 12-year-old girl, that's probably shorter than Bree. Can you give them a round of applause? <laughs> they were practicing that all week. It was so <laughs> they nailed it. <laughs> so the story that begins with a teenage peasant girl, nobody, from the middle of nowhere, with no family can't see it coming. You don't see it coming. You would never expect it, and it doesn't make sense. We would expect a Zacharias story, but we would never expect this Mary story. And Luke is making a very particular point, that there is nothing significant about the circumstances of Mary. That you could even argue there's nothing significant about her until we see how she responds. You with me? And just to cover, because I want to make some overarching arching themes here. The thing about the story of Ruth is that he's going to weave in theological truths and narrative that we'll see over and over again. And the fact that we pick up the contrast now as um, seeing the context is that this reveals something about God. God choosing Mary who has no circumstance and no status in society is really important to know what type of Christian God is. Are you with me? And then the story continues. Let's read. So, uh, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is already presently with you. He's currently in your circumstance. He's already with you. That's good news for many of us today. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The truth is this. In the first century, men would never greet women. Uh, Gabriel doesn't, really, doesn't greet Zechariah at all. doesn't give him any title whatsoever. But he... The angel of God, the messenger of God, greets Mary with a high-value greeting, a very, a very amazing affirmation that says God's with her in her current state. Mary was troubled because she never expected this. Uh, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. 
Mary, you have found favor with God. And then he's going to go on, and he's going to use um, promises from the Old Testament. And one thing that you've got to know about him, too, is much of his story is riddled with Old Testament imagery and illusions. And so he's, he's going to start using things to help her understand what's going to happen, but he's going to use the Old Testament to do this. He says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And Jesus is the Greek name for the Hebrew name Joshua. It's important to know this. Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Joshua, means Yahweh saves, or God's salvation. Later on in the story of Luke, we're going to read about a guy who's been promised to see the salvation of God um, before he dies. And he sees baby Jesus. And he says, I've seen the Lord's salvation. His name is God's salvation. Do you see any Irish importance? Okay, I'm just about that. I, I love that kind of stuff. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High God. And then he takes us straight out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. For those of you that are taking notes, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, this was promised to David. Um, he says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. These are promises that were given to David, that his kingdom and his reign will extend forever and ever. And so what we have going on is, is Gabriel is saying, the Old Testament thing that you've been waiting for, the promises of your people, are going to be fulfilled right now. You're a 12-year-old peasant girl, are you with me? And uh, her response is different than Zechariah's. She says, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. She looked back to Luke chapter 1, verse 18. Zechariah, Zechariah when told that his, his wife of old age is going to bear a child, his response was, how can I be sure of this? Zechariah, as Bill talked about last week, was responding out of fear, or responding maybe something we can relate to. It's something a little more easier to grasp. Is um, Zechariah had been praying for a son his entire life. Have you ever prayed for something for so long that when it came, you just could not believe it? That you doubted? Or that you're trying to hold on so tight to that hope that you just couldn't see it when it showed up? Zechariah's response is, prove it to me. God speaks something to him, and his response is, prove it. Mary's response is out of faith. And it's clarification. How? How can this happen? I don't know how this is going to work. I'm a virgin. How is this going to be? It's not showing the sign. Explain this to me. I've never seen God work this way. Have you ever had those types of conversations with God? Hear those. So the angel says, uh, again, using Old Testament language, the Holy Spirit will come on you. In Isaiah chapter 32, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming on the daughters of Jerusalem so that they can bear children. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The word overshadow is, again, straight out of Old Testament. It's a word translated into Hebrew to describe God's presence filling the temple and God's presence protecting the people of God and shielding the people of God. So God's presence is going to come over you or on you, Mary, in a way that's about protection and shielding and filling. Are you with me? And uh, even Elizabeth, uh, and sorry, so the Holy One uh, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. So what's happening is Luke is tying in all his Old Testament, bridging the two Testaments, the Old and the New together, seeing that this is simply the fulfillment. 
Mary's response is not like Zechariah's demanding a sign. Mary's response is openness. How can this be? How will this be? How is this going to unfold in my life so that I can be obedient? And the angel's response is nothing but Old Testament promise being fulfilled. Um, In Haggai chapter 2, it talks about the birth of a child that will be done by the Holy Spirit. Um, And then the last part, just as as he talks about Elizabeth being her relative, um, the angel says, for no word from God will ever fail. Or one translation is, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. God is fulfilling his Old Testament, uh, uh, the Old Testament promises of old. But Luke is making some significant points. And this is what I wanted to get here, get here so quickly to. Um, Luke is making some significant points. Luke is preparing us for the story of Jesus and the way it's going to unfold in the gospel. These will be themes that we will observe over and over again. And if you're new to the Christian faith, you need to grasp on to the beginning stories of Christmas. Because Christmas are not so, so much a Hallmark card or some nativity scene that's very playful and delighted, delightful. It is a provocative challenge to the culture, provocative challenge to empire. It is a provocative challenge to the way the world works. These are battle cries. These are battle hymns challenging the way the world works. So Luke is making two points. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a major theme of his book. One of the main reasons I wanted to teach you Luke and Acts has to do with the Holy Spirit being highlighted. We will see that Jesus is a man of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the works of God. It's involved in his birth, in his life, in his death and resurrection. And then we will see in Acts that the people of God, those that will follow Jesus afterwards, are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit to simply continue the ministry that Jesus already started. Are you with me? So one of the themes that we have here is that the people of God are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The story of Christmas is about the Spirit doing something miraculous and giving birth to a son um, who is God, Jesus, the incarnation of God himself. The second thing is called, and this is really important as well, is called the great eschatological reversal, or the great reversal. This is a theme we're going to read a lot about, and this is the theme that's going to challenge most of us. It's this idea. When we contrast the story of Mary to the story of Zechariah, it doesn't make sense. That's not how it works. It doesn't work to have a nobody from nowhere be involved with something so great. It makes sense when your reputation as a devout religious Jew in the, the heart of the city, in the heart of the, uh, of the temple, doing priestly duties. That makes sense. But what Luke reveals to us is the guy that's supposed to get it, that's supposed to remember the works of God, his name actually is God Remembers, doesn't get it. Instead, a 12-year-old girl from nowhere, a peasant girl, gets it. The great reversal is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That the greatest among us are servants to all. The great reversal is a theme that we will see weaved time and time again as the outsider is seen as the insider. As the insider is seen as the outsider. Jesus will say, greatest love is to lay down your life. Jesus will say, will say God hears the prayers and cries of tax collectors and prostitutes. That doesn't make sense to our religious culture. It doesn't make sense to our polite Christianity. But that's what Jesus is doing, and that's what Luke is making clear, is making the point. He'll say, look, he'll compare a rich young ruler... He'll compare a guy by all society standards is blessed by God. He'll compare that to a child that has no power or place in society. 
They'll say that God honors the offering of a widow versus that of a Pharisee. Jesus flips the world upside down and says, power should be used to empower. And this is why it's no surprise to us that the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the long-awaited Messiah King, is to be born to a peasant teenage mother with no family, no history, no significance in the middle of nowhere. Do you see how important this is? I don't know what type of Christmas story we buy into. I don't know what type of Christmas story we celebrate, but the biblical one is the one of the underdog. It's the one of the underappreciated, the overworked, the tired, and the exhausted, the least expecting failures of society. Christmas is simply a reminder of God's ever pursuit to bring justice to those who are desperate for justice. It is a prophetic beginning to God's work that he will use the poor and the powerless and the oppressed and the insignificant of the world for his triumph and purposes to redeem, to reconcile, and to renew the world back to himself. And this is good news. This isn't just another world religion. This isn't just another world religion that says that you can earn your way to God, that you can stand better than you already are standing with God, that you can climb a spiritual ladder and have more favor. This is the story of a God who says right where you're at, you're already favored. I love you as you are. That's the great reversal. That's the good news. And it's in the story of Mary. We're going to see this all over the place. It's in her story. And Jesus will continue, continue to insist on this type of message. And it is in the early works of Luke that he will uh, frame the gospel with this type of story. Are you with me? Good. So I said there's nothing significant about Mary. Nothing significant about her circumstance. In fact, you can say that it's insignificant. But so many of us, we, we paint this picture of her as, as some, somebody that had all, the, all these things together. That you would think that as, as Jesus is going to go about his ministry, that he's going to choose the brightest, the smartest, the most talented, that, the guy with the most potential, right? But what we see time and time again is one qualification, one desired trait that God is looking for. And that's, that's her response in verse 38. Nothing is impossible for God, for no word from God will ever fail. Her response is, I am the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's slave. Mary answered, May your word to me be fulfilled. The angel left him. May your word to me be fulfilled. The characteristic God is looking for is yes. Yes. One translation, and I love this translation, one commentator says that um, when she says, I am the Lord's servant, um, and then she says, May your word to me be fulfilled, a better translation is, I am the Lord's servant, let's do this. <laughs> I am the Lord's servant. Let's do this. So she's this young girl betrothed uh, to be married. She has no power, no place, nothing in society standard except betrothal. Now let's talk about this for a moment because we have to recognize the significant cost of that yes. <coughs> betrothal meant that the families had already negotiated a price that the, the family will pay to the bride's family. Uh, they've already negotiated a contract. It's been worked out. It's been worked out between families legally. They enter into a contract agreement. They're technically considered husband and wife, not officially though until their wedding day, when they consummate the marriage. We talked about this in sex, love, and thought. But during the betrothal period, it's about 12 to 18 months, where the husband to be will go to his father and build a room onto his house. We talked about this. We know about this. Jesus uses that language of preparing a room. Um, and that's what you'd do until the father said, go and get your bride, and then they would go, they would have a wedding and celebrate. 
Now the woman, or the bride-to-be, or the wife-to-be, will um, go with the mother-in-law for a year to a year and a half during that, term, during that time, spending the last year of her single life with her mother-in-law to learn the family business or learn the family trade or learn how to care for her soon-to-be husband or learn how to cook meals, learn to do what that mother-in-law did. And how many wives are saying amen to that? Obviously, she was in dire circumstances as is. So we have this betrothal period where they consider husband and wife, they would spend no alone time together. She's working with her, uh, her mother-in-law, and he's building a house with his father. Now here's what happens also. During the betrothal period, the only way to break it off is if one of them dies, or if one of them commits adultery. And if one of them committed adultery, the only response for that act is punishment by death. That she would be stoned to death for what would happen if she committed adultery. So when we read about a virgin betrothed to be married, the angel asking her to bear the Son of God is asking her to say yes to public disgrace, public humiliation. He's asking her to be challenged, misunderstood, pointed at, and known about that one thing for the rest of her life. That her yes will cost her her reputation and everything else. It will disgrace her family. It will disgrace Joseph. It will disgrace her for the rest of her life. In fact, 200 years after Mary lived and died, one rabbi tries to discredit the Christian movement and writes that Mary was a prostitute that had relations with a Roman soldier and an illegitimate child, Jesus. In the Old Testament, there were laws prohibiting Jewish couples of rearing up illegitimate children. She had everything going against her. When we read about a virgin asked to, to, uh, to bear the Son of God, we read about the cost of that yes. This is not some hallmark story. We're talking about looks, fingers being pointed. How do you have the conversation with your family? Hey guys, I'm pregnant. It's not Joseph's. God had something to do with it. <laughs> like 16 and pregnant or teenage pregnancy on... on uh, MTV is far worse. This is far worse. This is first century stuff. She would be killed for it. Joseph. Imagine going up to Joseph. It will take a divine act from God, a dream that Joseph had, had in order to allow this to go, go on. Joseph has the right to stone her to death because of this. When we read about a virgin being uh, betrothed, asked to do this, we're talking about disgrace. We're talking about an expensive yes. We're talking about the cost that it takes to follow God. Brothers and sisters, let me make it clear. There was nothing significant about Mary's circumstances. Nothing about her lineage. Nothing about her family history. Nothing about her location or status. Absolutely nothing. Except her willingness to say yes to God and be used by God in her life. That's what God is looking for. God, think, think about this for a moment. God's sovereign plan to redeem and renew and reconcile all things to himself, as Ephesians are saying, involves the cooperation and participation of ordinary individuals throughout history saying, yes, let's do this. God's sovereign plan of renewing, reconciling, and redeeming all things. There's a Greek translation in Ephesians that says all things in in Greek, it literally means all things. Bring all things to himself. 
It involves the cooperation and participation of ordinary individuals throughout history saying yes. God's plan to renew this place involves ordinary men and women simply saying, God, let's do this. You know what this, this text teaches us today? Because what, what really does, what do angels having, <coughs> speaking to 13 year old girls, have anything to do with long term Have you thought about that really though? Like, what do angels talking to some 12 year old peasant girl have anything to do with us? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, okay, yeah. Good answer. That's true. But what does it really have to do with us? You see, I think that this is offering us another way to live. Here's what it has to do with it. There's a way to live in this world in which you're up for it. There's a way to live in this world in which you're up for it. You're open. Jesus will challenge the way the world works time and time again. He will challenge everything you've ever been taught by this world. Not just in the first century, but today. He will challenge the way you live. He will tell stories about people to hold on and cling to their lives uh, intensely. They're like white-knuckling their lives. Some will define themselves by how much money they make. Some will define themselves by how how their possessions uh, manage up or build. Some people will build storages to contain more of their stuff. Some people will define themselves by where they sit among others. Some people will define themselves by sitting to the right or left of Jesus. In fact, it gets so intense, they're trying to cross their way in the kingdom that uh, their mother will get involved with it. Um, they cling to power. And, and you know what's funny? Uh, is that in the Roman world, in the first century, their kind of culture was all about winning. The Roman culture, which we're going to study over the next couple of weeks, is all about winning, it's all about conquering, it's all about achieving, it's all about getting ahead and taking what's yours. It's all about coming out on top and having lots of stuff. It's about making something of yourself at all costs. Does that sound familiar at all? And Jesus, there, there's, and the Roman world teaches that, the American culture that we live in and society teaches us that. They say that that's one way to live. And then there's Mary. Mary says enough for it. She says, let's do this. But Christmas is about anything. It's about all of us being open to what God is doing in the world. And if you think about it really, and then look at the story, is there anyone here that's just tired and weary from this past year? Or you look over the last 12 months and you're just exhausted? Trying to keep up with everyone else? Trying to make family a, a safer place, trying to make something for your family. Trying to manage conflict through relationships. Maybe you're burned out because you didn't get the job promotion that you thought you would get, or the increase of pay this year that you thought you would get. Things weren't exactly the way you wanted it to go. The, the things did not manage to be what you wanted them to be. You couldn't control the outcomes. How many of us are living lives where we're just holding on to whatever it is we have? Relationships jobs, our finances. We're defining ourselves by what we can hold on to. Is anyone here that feels this way, that's exhausted by trying to do this? And then there's the gospel, which allows us to release the outcome, to surrender the outcome. And Mary teaches us a way to recapture wonder and possibility. That nothing is impossible for God. Brothers and sisters, I think it's this, that there's an entire way of approaching life. There's a new posture that we're inviting into, a new habit, and it's about being open to what's next. I think this is the secret story of Mary. 
It's just about being open to what God has for us. But Mary reveals to us that the posture that we as Christians need to have is let's do this. For some of us, it's simply being open to God in our lives. Maybe you're here for the first time in church in a long time. You're just showing up. You're not singing a song. You're barely listening to me talk. You're just here. Maybe that's enough for right now. That you're open. You came. You showed up. Great. Awesome. Keep going forward. Just keep being open. Well, let's, let's do this mentality. Maybe some of you are here and, and, um, and you need to be open to God at your work. You need to see your workplace as the primary place to be a minister of God. And says, let's do this. Has anybody seen Zoander? Yes. That part? God? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's me more to it. That stranger that's talking to you, ask a follow-up question. They might say they're not doing very well, and that may bring you to a whole new place. It's a whole new set of possibilities for your life. Maybe being open to God or saying, "Let's do this," is saying, "God, I want you to be, the, uh, I want you to be in charge of my finances." What does it mean? What does it mean for you to really have reign of that area of my life? Let's do this. Might be have your way with my Christmas bonus. That's scary. Or, or, I mean, I think about all the ways that we just close people out. We live so consumed with ourselves, our prerogatives, our plans. And we walk into the coffee shop and just ignore the people around us. We get our lot and we walk out. We go to work. We do our 9 to 5. We walk in and walk out. And all while people and God, messengers of God, God is inviting us and inviting us into these moments, these truths, these experiences where all we have to do is say, let's do this, yeah. And yes opens up the door for possibilities. And yes is is a way that we can begin to enter into a new spirituality of God. And that's what I feel like the message that I really wanted to bring us to is I wanted to challenge us this season. At Christmas we talk about peace, hope, joy, and love. And I think we need that more than ever. But what we need are people that uphold the Holy Spirit that say let's do this to God. That have a new perspective of life. That will leave here and go to Lola's or go to Portfolio or go to Windsor or go to their homes where their family members are difficult and open themselves up to the possibility that God might want to use you exactly where you already are. And Christmas is not just about peace, love, joy, and hope. Those are amazing things, but it's about spirit-filled followers bringing peace, hope, joy, and love to all of those places that you go. The most amazing thing we could ever do in this city is release all of you here, filled with the Holy Spirit, and say yes to whatever it is God has invited you into. That's it. That's how the church became a movement, by the way. That's how people will die in the Roman Empire, all in Rome, for a man who lived in Israel and died in Israel for three years. That's how churches are planted around the world. That's how the poor are taken care of. That's how the hungry are fed. Because ordinary men and women say, yes, let's do it. So I just wanted to share that with you this morning. Um, all about recognizing the power of God in the ordinary places. And so, as a church, here's what I wanted to share with you guys. I mean that. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk about this book um, is the Holy
Holy Spirit. We can get really comfortable in our Christian lives. We can get really cozy in our reading of scriptures or showing up in church by the Bible says, and never allow God to penetrate our existence. Never allow God to fully fill us, energize us, empower us to live as our real self. The Holy Spirit is the active agent throughout the book of Luke. And if you want to call Acts anything, it's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, clearly, throughout the book of Acts. So for us, the more we reboot, the more we're going to recognize that we need to be people that are open to the Holy Spirit. This is not something we should be afraid of, or even be cautious about in many ways. This is not something that we should just talk about from the stage. This is something from a person of God that we need to experience for ourselves. So by way of introduction, my invitation this morning is to be open to the Spirit of God. Not just wherever you go, but here at Sundays. Open yourself up. When I speak really candidly, I really believe that what I see feelings here in this room dramatic And I'm willing to fail miserably as a pastor to see that happen. That we are going to invite people to come and get healing and Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But God invites us to be that type of community. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, obedient to His word. Amen. Second thing is just as close to my heart that Luke reveals to us. Is the more you read Luke, the more you realize that the people of God are called to be about the poor, the hurting, the marginalized, the least, the last, and the lost. This is not a hospital for the healthy but a place for the sick. That our lives should reflect the heart of Jesus and he is all about those that have no place in society. And so the more we can move, the more we can be inspired to be filled with the Holy Spirit and hopefully inspired to live amongst the poor, to care for those that we can never care about, to invite those to the table that don't even have a table at their home. That's what we're called to as a community. Amen? Can we stand together? We have a amazing surprise. But before that surprise comes, I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I love seeing Dan and Mary up here. This is innocent, four-year-old girl invited to bear the Son of God. I don't know what type of, you know, perspective, theological perspective you have. I believe she had a choice in that. She said yes. Yeah. It's a really significant thing to follow. I'm going to ask you three questions as you ask me to look Where is God leading you here? What is he inviting you to Lord Jesus, I pray as we receive this word, as we receive um, the, the message of Mary's openness and loneliness, that what makes her significant is the fact that she'll say yes to you despite her circumstances.
pray, Holy Spirit, that you would release ordinary men and women here that just say, let's do this. I pray, Jesus, that a garden would be known for a place where your spirit is, but also, Lord, that the garden would be known for the heart of the message of the gospel, that you go after the foreign powers and empower them when you are. So, Jesus, fill us with that compassion and release us in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.